For the ones who work hard to ensure their crew can always go the extra mile. And the ones who get in early so everyone can go home on time. There's Granger, Offering professional-grade supplies backed by product experts so you can quickly and easily find what you need. Plus, you can count on access to a committed team ready to go the extra mile for you. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done. Want to learn how you can make smarter decisions with your money? Well, I've got the podcast for you. I'm Sean Piles, and I host NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast. Our show features our team of nerds, personal finance experts in credit cards, banking, investing, and more. And they'll help you make the most of your money while cutting through the clutter and misinformation in today's world of personal finance. You'll get clarity on strategies to help you build your wealth, invest wisely, shop for financial products, and plan for major life events. Listen to NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast wherever you get your podcasts. On this episode of Most Notorious, Richard Two-Gun Hart, famed Nebraska lawman and long-lost brother of Al Capone. Uh, he would just go right up to some of these houses, you know, person answered the door, you know, because he, he had made certain this was the house where, where this was all being done. He'd knock the first person unconscious, find the biggest guy, knock them unconscious. And anybody else who's there, it's like, you want some, you know, and the, his reputation became so, so large in, in being able to achieve what he needed to do. There are several times where somebody would just find out that two gun was out there and they'd surrender. Welcome, everyone, to another episode of the Most Notorious Podcast. I'm Eric Rivenis. Thank you for joining me. It is so great to have with me today Jeff MacArthur. He is a Nebraska historian and author who worked for years in the L.A. movie industry. His books include Dirty Old War, Tales from Vietnam, and The Great Heist, the story of the biggest bank robbery in history, and the one he is here to talk about today, called Two-Gun Heart, Lawman, Cowboy, and Long-Lost Brother of Al Capone. Thank you for coming on. I appreciate it. Uh, thank you for having me. It's a thrill. Yes. Well, this is one of those historical tales that, frankly, doesn't even seem real. <laughs> it, it reads more like fiction than fact. Yeah, this story, it's, it is one of those things where when I would hear about it and like bits and pieces I would learn, I, there was a part of me that was like, is this really real? This is just, there, it seems too good to be true, but, or too, I shouldn't say too good, but too bizarre, too wild. And it's particularly some of the uh, hidden aspects of it, just because just the fact that Al Capone had this long lost brother and that he was a lawman and that he was specifically a prohibition officer, each one seems a little too unusual to be true. Uh, but then uh, in addition to all that, uh, you know, a lot of the little details, like for instance, the fact that he dressed up like a cowboy uh, and that he, the woman that he married was somebody that he saved from a flood and he really did live this cowboy movie kind of life and that he helped get all the money back from the largest bank robbery in history 
it's just one of those those things that as I, you know, for when I first heard about it, it was a little too good to be true. But in addition as well, there was sort of the sense of, but if this is true, why isn't anybody written about this? Why isn't there any other book? Uh, I shouldn't say anybody else written it because he had been mentioned in other books and he had a Wikipedia page and there were like little hints here and there. But I'm like, how could, how is it there's no other book about this? How am I so lucky? But there hadn't been. And so I jumped in and started writing, uh, started writing it. And, and as I would go along, more and more things would come up every now and then I'd find something and I would just fall back in my chair. My, my favorite story was at one particular point, I was studying his military career because we didn't have a lot of writings from him, but we knew what unit he was in. So I followed the unit, uh, the unit's path and where it went and everything and found out he was not only in World War One and uh, a war hero there and was personally decorated by the lead general, General Pershing, but he, but he also went on the punitive expedition in Mexico. And I learned that, I remember about two in the morning and I just shouted it out, I was so amazed. And my girlfriend and I were living in a studio apartment at the time. I just was like, oh my God. And she jumped out of bed all scared and was like, what, what, what's with, is there a fire? Are the cats okay? What's going on? And I went, I turned to her, I said, he was involved in the punitive expedition. And she looked at me and went, what the hell is the punitive expedition? So I started explaining it to her about uh, uh, Pancho Villa and all that. And, and she just goes, I'm going to bed. <laughs> goes back to sleep. So yeah, it was just one thing after another after another. Just unbelievable story. Yeah, it really is. So let's start where you start in your book with the Capone family. When did they first come to the United States and how did they get by in their early years? Well, they came uh, came across in the 1890s, and you know there wasn't a lot known about them back where they were. But it was interesting as I was writing this book. Uh, it's always been believed that the Capone family came from Naples, but as I was writing this, I actually got that help from the Hart family because he changed his name to Richard Hart. His real name was Vincenzo Capone. Ran away from home as a teenager. Basically, went on uh, several adventures. Wound up in, uh, as I say, the Punitive Expedition. Uh, World War One. He was in a Wild West show for a while. Wound up in Homer and changed his name to Richard Hart because there was so much bigotry against Italians at the time. The name Capone didn't mean anything, so he went by the name Richard Hart. So the Hart family. So they they were descendants of him, and they went by the name Hart for a long time, and they they kind of kept that name because of the baggage that came along with having a Capone name. But as this book was being written the Hearts and the Capones kind of came back together again. And they started, you know, uh, talking to each other more than they ever had. And they actually went back to Italy. And when they were there, they went to Naples and they slowly learned that, no, the Capones didn't come from there. They actually came from Hungary. So there's some information that comes out in this book that had never been known before. This is sort of the first time when they, they kind of learned that. And it's when the Capones went back to Italy for the first time in over 100 years to kind of learn uh, where they came from and who they were at that time and all that sort of thing. And it's in the book. I forget the exact year. I think it's 1897. If it contradicts in the book, <laughs> go by that. That's when I actually had the notes. But it essentially, they left Italy. We didn't know why. We couldn't tell. But we know why Italians were leaving in general. And it has ba it has to do with a lot of problems that were happening in Italy at the time. But ironically, one of the biggest things was organized crime had become such a big problem there that in many ways people were fleeing from organized crime to come to the U.S. So it's quite possible that the, Capone, that the Capones left Angri, Italy, specifically to get away from organized crime. They got uh, they got to New York, and that actually Al was either the first or second child to be born there. They had uh, it was uh, Vincenzo was the oldest. He had been born in in Hungary. 
Raphael was born when they were still there. And then Salvatore was born either on the way to New York or just when they got there. And then Alphonse was, was the next one born. And basically the neighborhood that they grew up in, if you've ever watched the movie Gangs of New York, it was very much like that. That's, that, that was where the gangs that existed in the area and people who were growing up there did not have a lot of prospects. And so you found a lot of kids, you know, who were, a lot of boys who were growing up falling into those gangs. Uh, Vincenzo was decidedly not wanting to do that. He was, he loved Old West movies and he loved the mentality of the, the, uh, the good guy cowboy wearing the white hat, fighting the bad guy. And he did not want to fall into the gangs of, of the area. And he would go off to Staten Island a lot of times because they had, they, there were these ice companies and they would use horses to move the ice. And so he would go out there and ride horses and he would take his younger brother, Al, along with him. And Al was about uh, seven, eight years old at the time. And so they'd give him a pony and it was like Alphonse's favorite activity to do. But then one day they go down to the Staten Island Ferry and Vincenzo turns to him and says, not today, Al. Today, you know, you're staying behind. And he gets on the ferry, goes off. And Al, eight years old, is watching him go across, uh, you know, watching the ferry leave. Uh, and that's the last time he saw him. He just disappeared. That's when Vincenzo ran away. And Al, having nowhere to turn, basically ended up turning to his older brothers, uh, Raphael and, and Salvatore, uh, who were going by Ralph and Frank by then. And basically with them joined the uh, the different gangs in the area and the rest is basically history. And they basically grew up there, so. You throw out a couple of theories on why he really left, but what do you believe happened? I mean, what, was it some family conflict that he was running from or was it just an overwhelming urge to wander? You know, it's, unusual because the, that's a very good question that is kind of like the the a million dollar question that we'd all love to have answered because we've never really known we've never in fact the Hart and Capone family uh, has been trying to find that out for for a very long time and they've never known I unfortunately his son Harry who uh, is the person I initially spoke to to get all this information he never had thought to ask his father that there's a lot of questions he never thought to ask his father so, yeah, we, we never, you know, and he'd passed away by that point, uh, by the time that we're all trying to ask and find out. Um, there are, yeah, there are theories, there's beliefs, uh, but there's never been anything written in stone enough. I mean, there's been concepts, ideas that he and his father had uh, falling out, had a conflict or whatever. Um, to me, what it seems like is the biggest thing was he felt that he had no prospects in New York, that the best possibilities for a young Italian man was getting into the gangs. And it's not because of a stereotype, it's because, well, basically because of bigotry at the time, there was very much of a, well, we'll just, you know, a new immigrant group would come in and they just kind of get shoved to one area uh, of town and just kind of, you know, forgotten about. And the, oftentimes the only way to, to get out was to fight their way to prominence. So I think Vincenzo just simply saw, a, and film, you know, movies were coming, well, actually, no, this is sort of pre-movies, but like he, the theater was portraying, I guess, a lot of these, um, uh, what do you call it? The the old west. So in particular, there's one story of him watching um, Ben Hur, which isn't western per se, but there were a lot of horses on stage, and and William S. Hart was on there, and William S. Hart was very much into uh, the old west and all that. And so I think what it was is that he started seeing images of what it was like, you know, with these wide open vistas and grand landscapes. So I think there it was for him overall. It was mostly an escape from the restrictiveness of of where he was in New York. 
Some believe he might have killed someone. Others believe his reason for leaving might have had something to do with something as simple as him playing his violin too much, which made his father angry and led to a confrontation. Yeah, you know, that's the thing. There's possible conflicts with his father that they, you know, this, there's some beliefs that maybe uh, there was that. And that, yeah, one of the stories was that he played it too loud. His dad got mad and he took the violin and broke it and chased him. Yeah, and I've never seen any anything that really proved that. Uh, now, we do know that, like, that story, unfortunately, it, it, there's the, the credibility gets shaky because the story continues that he chased him away and, and Vincenzo ran off and didn't come back. But we do know... Uh, as a fact that, at least from the information that's gotten passed down through other people, that Al walked Vincenzo down to the dock. And we do know that he did go off with this this production company called the 101 Wild West Show that happened to be in Staten Island. So it would be a heck of a coincidence if it just happened to be when he ran away from his father and they were just leaving then. Now, it is possible. And so that there are these various theories and several of them could be possible. But it's... Uh, you know, it, it's sort of on shaky ground. Um, the, the, the theory that he killed somebody, that's always been a you know possibility there, especially the areas they were living in. I don't personally think that was w- what happened, but, you know, it's unfortunately this has always been, and part of the book is written specifically as here's what this person says, here's what this person says, here's what this, because of the fact by the, by the sheer nature of what these, this, the, the people I'm writing about uh, did in their careers they were all very secretive. So unfortunately, uh, a lot of it is just simply what we can gather from this bit, or the, you know, this bit of information, that bit of information. And yeah, it's, it, there's, there's sometimes where it's just, it's which story do you believe kind of a thing. It was really devastating for the Capone family, uh, wasn't it? When the oldest son disappeared. Yeah. You write in your book that in Italian families during this time, the oldest son was really put on a pedestal, given extra responsibilities, more was expected from him. Yes, and in fact, actually, that ultimately seems to be what caused Al to end up going into the life of crime, because essentially when the oldest brother leaves, uh, yeah, it's devastating to the family, but typically within the Italian tradition, the uh, next oldest brother is supposed to sort of take over and, and take a lot of responsibilities, especially then when the father dies. And that's exactly what happened. Gabrielle died. And again, according to the, to the Italian tradition, it should be the oldest brother then sort of takes his role. He's gone. The next two brothers, uh, Raphael and, and Salvatore, are just in and out of prison. They're always in trouble. Now, Alphonse was also in the gangs and getting into trouble, but he had been, as much as people talk about him being like the ultimate gangster, he actually always kind of was part of the reason he's so famous is kind of, in some ways he kind of held back a little bit, uh, at least in so far as as much as a lot of the others, because the others don't become get to be as infamous because they're always in and out of prison. They're always in, in and out of trouble. Many of them get killed, you know, et cetera. And at the time when his father died, Al, uh, Alphonse, this is after he had gotten stabbed and, and uh, you know, cut upon his face and got known as Scarface. He also had just gotten married. He or he got married right about that time and he had a son. And so he was looking to get out of everything and go more into being just a straight, you know, just regular business. Um, but then his father dies and his two older brothers are getting in and out of trouble all the time. His his oldest brother is gone. And so it fell on him to take care of the family and he could barely afford to take care of his own wife and child. 
And at that same time, Johnny Torrio, who had been a mentor of his throughout his you know young crime life, was now in Chicago. And he basically at that point said, hey, why don't you, you know, the prohibition has just started. That's going to open up a whole underworld business. And I'm going to be building it up here in Chicago. Why don't you come out and join me? And that's that's it. And that's how Al went out and joined him. And that's that's kind of the rest is history with in terms of Al. Interesting. Yeah. So Vincenzo, he ends up running off with the Wild West show. What what role does he play in the show? He, you know, for a long, it was difficult for us to, to tell, but what we've surmised from going through the credits and seeing the types of names that he used, it seemed that he he became a props person and specifically worked with the guns. Uh, he always became very interested in guns. It was something that was sort of a passion of his. And so, uh, yeah, it seems that he was he was sort of taking care of the guns and, and was a prop master for them as they did the this Wild West show all over the Midwest and were stationed in Oklahoma until uh, they, they made a stop over at Fort Grant where they were getting people for the military. And he sort of jumped off from them and, and joined that, which was probably good timing because they actually then tried to do a tour in Europe just when World War I was getting going. And it got in a lot, they ended up with a lot of trouble. Their horses were confiscated for the war. Several of them got killed. Uh, so while they were at Fort Grant, he joined up with them, uh, wound up traveling with them, uh, went and it was about the same time that World War One was beginning over in uh, Europe, but the U.S. was uh, having some borders disputes with uh, Mexico, and so they wound up fighting down there. Ended up on the, what was called the Putative Expedition, where they actually went into Mexico chasing after Pancho Villa and his army. And then we, you know, the U.S. wound up going over into Europe, and he went with them. Ironically, he fought some in Italy, then moved up into France, uh, and he has vivid descriptions of some of the battles which match exactly and he had photographs from there it's funny because there, to this day there's some history videos that will say oh he claimed to have gone to europe but he really wasn't there and it's like i have photos in the book of him there during all this when you know next to pipelines next to artillery you know if he was faking those man he really was uh you know going all out and spending a lot of money anyway but yeah, he uh, and he was actually, and this is the the other thing is there's a picture of him being decorated by uh, General Pershing. Uh, General Pershing's putting a medal on him for brave acts and in being a sharpshooter. And that sharpshooting skill he has, he he puts that into use for the rest of his life. Yes, yeah, because when he goes back uh, to the U.S., he basically ends up getting on a train and going north through the Midwest, and he just sort of hopped off seemingly randomly in this small town called Homer, Nebraska. Now, it was sort of a question as to why did he stop in Nebraska, of all places? Uh, I mean, you know, why not later in Iowa or, you know, down in Kansas or whatever? Um, But one thing that is also known sort of separately from this is that uh, John Pershing was a huge fan of Nebraska. In fact, there are buildings named after him because he put money into the place and he lived there for a little bit and all that. And if he was getting, you know, personally decorated by him, uh, my guess is that he just at some point said, hey, if you want to go live this kind of lifestyle, Nebraska's the place. Uh, Anyway, yeah. And so he just sort of got off and he wanted to go and live the life of a cowboy. He wanted to live like, you know, like he had seen in the movies. And he got off and and just dressed like a cowboy, even though most people weren't dressing that way. This is the 1920s, not the 1880s. Um, But he wouldn't let that stop. He just kind of went along and ended up becoming a prohibition agent. And this being, you know, way out in the middle of 
I, I don't want to say nowhere. I'm from, I'm from Nebraska. It's not nowhere, but it's, you know, there are big open areas. It's not a lot of city. And when you're enforcing the law out there, oftentimes it does come down to, um, you know, who's the better one with a gun, you know? Yeah. Tell us what he, he looked like and how he dressed. Uh, you know, to get a visual description of him, I, I found it really ironic. At one point I was watching the Daily Show and the guest was, uh, was what is his name? Ah, the, the latest James Bond. Um, can't think of his name at the moment. But anyway, the latest James Bond. Uh, and Daniel Craig. Daniel Craig. And I, I just happened to have a photograph of uh, Richard Hart up at the same time. And I compared the two. I was like, oh, my God, he looks just like him or he looks a ton like him. But he had darker skin. That was the one thing. And again, there was so much uh, hatred for Italian uh, Italian Americans. There was so much bigotry against them that he started saying, oh, no, I'm native. I'm, you know, at the, the time they'd say Indian. Uh, I'm, you know, Mexican. He'd say basically anything but Italian because he was so afraid of people finding out that he was Italian. And so he did not tell anybody his real name for many years. I mean, later on in the 1920s, obviously he had an, a, an even bigger reason to hide the name Capone. But he, he told everybody that his name was Richard Hart, taking the name Hart from William Hart, the movie star. And basically, and like I say, he dressed up head to toe with the, you know, cowboy hat, had two six shooters at his side. That's why he got called Two Gun Hart was because he carried two six shooters at his side, rode a horse. Uh, you know, again, while other people were driving cars, he would ride, ride a horse. And I think that's one of the reasons he was so successful was because, you know, the, the roads in Nebraska weren't always the best. And so, you know, while somebody trying to get away would have to be driving on the road, he could cut cross country. Yeah. And that's, you know, I mean, aside from that, I mean, he's, you know, sort of stocky, muscular, all that, but, uh, uh, I don't know how, how else to really describe. If you just if you look at a picture, you can see a picture online. But if you were to look at him, uh, Daniel Craig during his Bond years, it's like wow, he looked a lot like that. And we will be back after a brief message. Hey there, I'm Dylan Lewis, one of the hosts of Motley Fool Money. Each weekday on Motley Fool Money, we talk through the business news you need to know and the stories moving stocks on Wall Street. On weekends, we dive into the industries shaping tomorrow and host the experts, authors, and executives that understand them. Tune in for insights, a long-term perspective on investing, and of course, stock ideas, plenty of them. To quote a listener, it pays to listen. Check us out and subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts. Welcome to From Beneath the Hollywood Sign. If you love old movies, Hollywood history, or the golden age of filmmaking, you've come to the right place. This is the podcast that talks about amazing stories of Tinseltown from another era and fascinating conversations with writer-producer Steve Kubine and actress-writer Nan McNamara. One particular argument, he ended up dislocating Ava's jaw. <gasps> Ava, she was such a tough cookie. Rather than cry or scream or anything like that, she... Well, or call she, the police. Or call the police, like she should have, <laughs> exactly. What does she do? She takes an ashtray and she knocks him over the head and knocks him unconscious. That's how she fought back. She didn't know what to do, so she called Louis B. Mayer. I think I've killed Howard Hughes. What do I do? Revisit a time when the pictures were still big and everyone was ready for their close-up. When you want Tyrone Power instead of Tom Hardy, Jennifer Jones instead of Jennifer Lawrence, or Robert Mitchum rather than Robert Pattinson, then From Beneath the Hollywood Sign is the gin joint for you. Hi, I'm Matt Albers, host of the Pirate History Podcast. 
The men and women of the golden age of piracy are some of the most infamous and often misunderstood characters in all of human history. You know their names. Captain Morgan, Anne Bonny, Henry Avery, Mary Reed, Captain Kidd, Blackbeard. But do you know their stories, their real stories? Every week over on the Pirate History Podcast, we explore the real lives of these pirates. We examine what made these pirates sail the high seas in search of plunder and adventure and revenge. The real stories are a lot more complex and a lot more interesting than the stories most of us have been told. If you'd like to hear the stories of the real men and women who went on the account and sailed under the black flag, Join us on the Pirate History Podcast. And we have returned. So here is Vincenzo Capone. Now Richard Two-Gun Hart. He decides to put up stakes in this tiny little town in the middle of the plains. He looks different. He dresses differently. He doesn't have any friends or family, um, at least initially. Mm-hmm. What does he do? You know, he at first he wanted to uh, work as a lawman. He, you know, was like, okay, I've, you know, again, thought it would be as simple as in the movies and just go up and, you, you know, you need a sheriff. I'm the, I'm your man. But they already had everything taken care of. They didn't need anybody in that. So he just ended up doing odd jobs, just wherever he could get it. He was paint. He was a painter. He was work, work construction. He would just kind of do whatever he could, you know, do to get hired. While he was doing this, he kind of became a, a a bit of a town hero because there was this massive flood that went through and he happened to be riding in a car with uh, this young lady named Kathleen Winch and her mother and, and her brother. And the flood kind of came along, picked up the car and started floating it down the road. And the mother tried stopping the car and she got, she tried like putting a leg out and she got swept away. There was a little girl in the car, fell out, got swept away. The brother went out, tried to find them. He got swept in another direction. And so Richard jumps out. Here he is floating in this car with this this woman he's attracted to. And he just goes, well, he just jumps out, swims around, gets each one of them, pulls them each to safety, then gets to the car, grabs it and pulls it up a hill. Uh, and needless to say, Kathleen was impressed. And they were married a few months later. Uh, and he just kind of got sort of known as being this, this, you know, well, for one thing, a very good swimmer, kind of popular around town. He wound up becoming the town marshal or something like that. I, forgive me if I if I sometimes hesitate on like what was this because I've written a few books since then and so now sometimes like when I'm writing a book I have all my notes on one side and I always refer to those but unfortunately years later I'll be like ah so read the book if you want to know the specifics basically he ends up becoming you know a local law enforcement officer but really like not being paid much and you know doesn't have a lot of authority but then prohibition comes along and it isn't so much that he's like, yay, nobody gets to drink anymore. In fact, his own father-in-law uh, made uh, homemade liquor, but he, he wants to be a law enforcement officer in some regard, and they have a big need for prohibition officers. So he joins that and immediately starts just being this complete overachiever, ends up making headlines all over the place as Richard Hart. And that's where he gets his nickname, Two-Gun Hart, uh, becoming one of the most successful prohibition officers in the country. So I guess the way I would describe him, the, the picture I got in my head from reading your book, the way he dressed, it reminds me of an early Western film star like Tom Mix. Right. It's, it's like it's an embellished version of an actual cowboy 
or a lawman. Right. Like a movie version of the real thing. Right. You know, with his decorated boots, his twin pearl-handled pistols, That's et cetera. That's a very good point. Yeah. Right. Yeah, that's a very good point. Yeah, you're right. It's it's more of the idealized view of the Old West, not the real Old West. That, uh, yeah, good point. <laughs> so he overachieves, as you say. Could you describe his methods, how he handled these moonshiners, th- these breakers of prohibition law? What set him apart from other prohibition agents of the era? So, yeah, a lot of what he did was he would, uh, I mean, it was, it was a lot of different types of things. Uh, essentially, I mean, at the very beginning, it was, you know, he kind of knew who all was making uh, alcohol anyway. And so he'd just kind of go to those places. And in some ways, it's kind of like in the untouchables where it's like, we, everybody knows where it's being made. Just everyone's too afraid to go do anything about it. He would kind of bust in those doors and basically capture all of the manufacturing materials. But uh, as time would kind of go on, more and people would, you know, hide it and all that sort of thing. So he would go undercover and he would disappear for like a month at a time, going looking like a day laborer and working in some place and finding where it was and, and then, you know, coming out and revealing himself. One of my favorite stories is at one point he's, he's got uh, one person he's captured and he's actually driving a car. He did own a car and sometimes would drive people in it. But he's driving this one guy he's already captured and he's supposed to be going back to Homer but he gets lost in a rainstorm, winds up in another town and just kind of goes, well, somebody's probably making liquor here. So he just goes up, asks somebody, you know, hey, where do I where do I buy some liquor around here? And they pointed it out and he wasn't he apparently he wasn't in his officer's outfit or whatever, because he wouldn't necessarily have one. But anyway, he he uh, they didn't recognize him for whatever reason. And they just pointed out where to go. So he just drove over to where they pointed out the guy's like, you know, can I help you? And he just smacked the guy, knocked him unconscious, threw him into the car, drives him over to the sheriff's office and goes in, sees the deputy there. He says like, where's the sheriff? I've got this guy, he's selling liquor. And the deputy points at the guy that he had grabbed, that he had knocked unconscious. And and so Richard actually became very, uh, from that particular incident and several others, uh, he started to become really uh, disenchanted because of the fact that he saw a lot of the corruption. He saw a lot of the people that he would basically go undercover and in the end, I mean, basically, he'd kind of like work his way up the ladder, you know, find, okay, this person is selling, this person's the distribution. And he'd find the people at the top were oftentimes politicians or heads of local law enforcement or whatever. And he was like, so you all want me to go capture the lower ones down, the people who are basically working for you, uh, but you don't want me to capture you guys. So they, he really realized there was a lot of hypocrisy into it. On the sticks, a lot of times what you end up having is like, a farm or, uh, you know, a farm home where the people who are kind of in charge that are there and they're making, they're making whatever they're making, whether it be alcohol or today it'd be drugs or whatever, sort of out in the woods somewhere where it's kind of hard to find. There were a lot of times there was hollowed out trees. And so he'd basically have to go searching around, but going after some of these farmhouses would be difficult because you'd have these sort of like armed camps. And so he'd work his way to there by getting to know some people in the towns and again, either work undercover and wind up going up there. Or there were some times where he got into straight up gunfights with some people. But eventually he ended up leaving that because he got so sick of the corruption and he ended up working with the Bureau of Indian Affairs where, because there were a couple of reservations right next to Homer, they're still there, the Winnebago and Omaha reservations. And uh, he found that there really was a true problem in those reservations we look at prohibition throughout most of the U.S. as a failed experiment. 
in the Indian reservations, they were really needed because there was, you know, a real problem of, of alcoholism on there. There was just this massive amounts of alcoholism on there, uh, on the reservations. Uh, and the elders just loved him. So he started working for them and started having a lot less problems with him. I mean, he still used a lot of the same methods. What he would do was uh, he would deputize, you know, the people from the population, the Winnebago and Omaha men. He basically, he got so so involved in those communities that he got to know the language. He literally learned the languages of the Winnebago and the Omaha. He learned their customs. He got involved in their customs. He practiced them. Uh, when he would go to go to their ceremonies, he would be a part of them. And so as a result, he was, there was so much part of the community that nobody, that, that a lot of people didn't want to cross him because they, they respected him. And if others were, were doing something, they would side with him, right? Even though he was the cowboy and they were, you know, it's like we always hear about the cowboys and the Indians, but they, they, they would side with him because they saw what he was doing, that he was genuinely trying to clean up the reservations and help cure this this ongoing problem um so yeah that was a lot of his kind of methodology if you will one of the strategies you write because he was completely fearless i mean he had no hesitancy to go into a, a den of half a dozen bootleggers by himself yeah and he would knock down the biggest one immediately Right. Mm-hmm. Yeah, exactly. He would basically he'd find the guy who was the biggest one and immediately smack that guy down and show that, you know, and he would knock the person unconscious and show he means business uh, and not mess around. And, you know, I mean, sometimes today people can look back and see his methods as being a bit over the top. But when you consider the fact that he had no backup, oftentimes he was going in there completely alone. Maybe he'd have one deputy, but just like you say, he'd go into an entire den and I mean, to kind of give a visual description, if anybody's seen the show Ozark, it's a lot like that. You go into somewhere, you think of, you know, oh, it's the Midwest, there's nobody dangerous there or whatever. It's like, no, actually, you'd have a, you know, a single house and this big field out in front of it. And it's like, if, if they pull out a gun, there's nowhere for you to, to run to uh, and your body can disappear. There's nobody who's going to hear what happens to you. Uh, he would just go right up to some of these houses you know, person answered the door, you know, because he, he had made certain this was the house where, where this was all being done. He'd knock the first person unconscious, find the biggest guy, knock them unconscious. And anybody else who's there, it's like, you want some, you know, and the, his reputation became so, so large in, in being able to achieve what he needed to do. There are several times where somebody would just find out that two gun was out there and they'd surrender. There was a guy, there was an actual, one of these sort of mass shooter kind of situations, this guy who would, well, not mass shooter, he'd shot somebody, he'd killed, I think it was his wife, and he had holed himself up inside of his home and he blockaded himself and nobody could get up to the home. The, the whole police force was there. It was like a siege. And he said he'd basically shoot anybody who came up and he'd prove and when somebody tried to go up, he would shoot at them. Very dangerous situation, a whole big siege. And then... Richard shows up and somebody calls out in the bullhorn, Two Gun Hard is here. The guy walked out with his hands up. <laughs> it's just, the, he had such a reputation, either through uh, fear and or respect. Uh, and I don't mean respect uh, of fear respect. I mean, genuine, like I say, with a lot of the, the, the people of the reservations, they just respected that this guy cared about them because he actually not only worked at the Winnebago and Omaha reservations, but he also then worked in Pine Ridge with the Lakota. Uh, and he went further west in uh, into Washington. And, you know, each time he if every place he went, he learned the language. He, he got involved with the customs and he got to know everybody there. And 
they all just loved them. I mean, to this day, you can go to some of those reservations and say, do you know about Two Gun Heart? And everybody's like, oh, my grandfather can tell you, you know, he, he knew all these stories and they, they all know about them. And he's just a legend among a lot of these places. And I mean, before I go on sounding like, uh, like it's the, uh, oh, it's called the uh, white hero story goes in and solves some other culture's problems. What one of the things that they just loved so much was that he gave them power. He, he didn't just go, okay, I'm here to save. He wasn't the white savior kind of person. He went in there and said, okay, who are the responsible people of this community? And they got involved. He may have been the center of it. He may have been the one who had the official authority, but he deputized all of them. And he was one of the only BIA agents who would go, okay, you know, you all know what you're doing. I'm going to have, you know, a lot of you take control over your own areas and I will support. So yeah, that was part of what really made him a hero in my view. Yeah, one of the more interesting aspects to all of this was despite the fact that he had developed this larger-than-life reputation and he was really successful at rooting out crime in these areas. And it wasn't just moonshine stills that he would bust up. I mean, he'd solved murders as well and other crimes. Right. But even with this stellar resume... He would find himself out of a job quite often, right? Yes, and the main thing was because he uh, because he was such a good cop because he would find corruption of his bosses and he would call them out for it. Uh, and a lot of times people – I mean this is oftentimes true to this day. You keep your jobs through knowing who, who's asked to kiss. It's like I can arrest that guy but I can't go after this guy uh, or whatever. But he didn't believe in that. He was like, no, if you're committing crimes, I'm going after you. Uh, he finally lost his BIA uh, job when his supervisor, he found that his supervisor was giving special favors to particularly some of the local white population and uh, being corrupt towards a lot of the uh, local native population. Uh, and when he called the guy out on that, uh, the, it was his own supervisor. So the supervisor, the superintendent, first of all, started trying to look into his past and started to actually discover some of the uh, – started getting close to the fact that he was a Capone. And so Richard conveniently took a vacation about that time. Uh, but then the guy ended up just uh, straight out firing him. And Richard went to the, the Bureau of Indian Affairs the you know in Washington and said, hey, this guy has been doing these corrupt things. He's the one who should be fired, you know, et cetera. And rather than taking Richard's side, they took the superintendent's side. And he really found how much corruption there was even among them. Because then when Richard went, okay, I'll go back to Homer, just have me continue working there. And the, nope. And again, he was, had not made a lot of friends back there because there were times he found corruption there. Because the Bureau of Indian Affairs also was working close with uh, the Office of Prohibition. And of course, when he found corruption among them, they, they didn't particularly like it. So he basically ended up with a lot of people who were not friendly to him. So yeah, the, the, a lot of the governmental programs just turned their back on him. And he wound up after, basically as the Great Depression was starting, he wound up without a job and unable to get back into uh, the Bureau of Indian Affairs or uh, become a prohibition agent again. And ironically, the guy, the superintendent that he had called out in Washington, he then got caught in other regards, and the main way he ended up getting caught was he was having an affair, which was a much bigger scandal at the time. And he ended up having to escape to Mexico with his uh, with his lover. Uh, so, and then even then, Richard went back to them and said, "Hey, you found out that this guy was corrupt. Let me back in." And they were nope, wouldn't even answer. And he even made a, he got like all these people who had worked with him and who had admired him and respected him throughout all the years. As it's kind of a touching 
climax in a way because it's just letter after letter after letter by all of them. I have them all like sitting on a shelf right next to me here. Just of all of these people who who stood up for him, who spoke up for him, who said, you know, all these wonderful things about him. And yet that was still wasn't enough. They're just like, nope, no, he, you were, you, you know, your superintendent didn't like you, so you can't work with us again. So he wound up actually living in a shack that he kind of built with his family. He had a wife and four kids by this point living uh, in a shack down by the, uh, uh, down by the Creek. Well, I shouldn't say Creek. It was a full river, but anyway, down by the Missouri river. You also write in your book that it is impossible to know how many people he arrested over his career because he did not like to do paperwork, did he? Right. That was actually, and that is the one place where a lot of times uh, the superintendents would actually have, would have a lot on him uh, or would have a legitimate claim against them because yes, he was sort of that cliche, uh, again, uh, using the movie comparison, you know, the, the boss is saying, you got to do paperwork. And he's like, I don't want to, I'm too busy going out and getting the next guy. He would arrest somebody, take them back and not do the paperwork he needed to do because he wanted to go right out and, and get someone else uh, or follow another lead or whatever. And so as a result, a lot of his charges wouldn't stick and they couldn't get a lot of convictions because he hadn't done his paperwork or, he, you know, he'd be undercover when he instead of going back and being a uh, witness at a trial or something like that. So, yeah, there there that was the, the legitimate uh, claim against him a lot of times is, is the fact that he just did not do the paperwork he was supposed to do. What I found um, noble about him is, is that he would sometimes find himself in a job that would get defunded or even eliminated and he would just continue to work for free. Right. Yes. That was a, yeah, yeah. He just was so passionate about it. And then the funding would run out and he'd be like, well, you know, he, he just kept doing it rather than going and getting another job. He's like, well, you know, you'll, you'll pay me back at some point. And sometimes they still couldn't, but he just kept on, kept on going and made, you know, worked through those gaps. He, he just was that passionate about the job, you know? So in his law enforcement career, he did kill one person, right? Right. Yeah. And there, it, there was a, it was an accident when it was, it was a car chase. And again, living the movie kind of lifestyle, they're uh, chasing this guy through the streets. Uh, he's leaning out the, uh, the car, shooting at the, at the tires of the car. Uh, his partner was leaning out the other window and shooting one of their bullets struck the guy in the back of the head. You know, it's it's actually been believed there was probably the other guy who hit him, but we don't, you know, we don't really know. And Richard's the one that got blamed because he, he well, for one thing, because a lot of people in authority didn't like him, but also he had always been the one to kind of go in and, you know, strike for, he'd kind of been known as the reckless one or whatever. And so uh, he got blamed for it. And it was just basically somebody, it wasn't even a, a major bootleg or anything. It was just somebody who had bought alcohol and just got freaked out when he when police got behind him and tried to to drive away, tried to get away quickly. And what was particularly heartbreaking was it was a war veteran just like Richard. Uh, so it broke his heart. It broke the entire community's heart. The community really turned against him. This was in Sioux City, which was a little bit north of, of Homer. And he was charged and was going to be on trial. He wound up being found not guilty, and the you know the, the public was very upset with with them about that. But yeah, that was the that was the one time when I mean, in any other time, despite all the other battles he got into, gunfights, fistfights, etc., that was the only time where he was involved in somebody getting killed. And 
it might have been him. It might have been his partner. It's it's not really sure. But regardless, he basically took responsibility. He didn't say like, oh, no, it was definitely my partner. It was more like we were trying to go after the tires. But yeah, he, he pointed out as more being an accident. But regardless, yeah, it was a tragedy either way. Stay with us. We will return momentarily. Everybody shush! William Shatner has something to say. Cat and Jethro, box of oddities. What do you do when the woman you love dies? Well, of course you dig her up and you live with her. Aww. The show examines weird things. There are plenty of old photographs from this time period of children out in the streets playing in and among the dead horse carcasses. Oh, I miss those days. Things used to be so much simpler. Cat and Jethro. Then there's the urine wheel, which sounds like a really bad game show. They've done weird things. Cat and Jethro, box of oddities. That is really mysterious. Join Cat and Jethro Gilligan-Toth for the strange, the bizarre, the unexpected as they lift the lid and cautiously peer inside the box of oddities. The Webby Award-winning Box of Oddities podcast from Airwave Media. The storm broke in Chattanooga one night in 1906 when a young woman was the victim of a violent crime. From that moment, the city knew no peace for four furious years. At the center of the storm was the notorious inmate, Dave Edwards, who was awaiting trial on murder charges. After a high profile case threatened to go cold, the desperate county sheriff did the unthinkable by freeing Dave Edwards from jail and deputizing him to track down the fugitive. Grievous Deeds, Four Years of Fury in Chattanooga, Tennessee, written by Kimberly Tilly, narrated by Samuel Burst is the most amazing true crime story you've never heard. Listen to Grievous Deeds, the audiobook, available on Audible, iTunes, and Amazon. Let Mysteries at Midnight be your destination for detective whodunits and captivating mystery stories. You'll hear classic stories like Sherlock Holmes, Agatha Christie's Poirot, and short tales from H.G. Wells, Charles Dickens, Edgar Allan Poe, and others. I'm Christopher, and I read these classic stories in the soothing style of a bedtime story, so you can listen to them in bed when you drift off to sleep. I also host the number one sleep podcast in the world called Sleep Cove, where millions drift off to meditations, hypnosis, and bedtime stories. We soon realized that listeners wanted to hear our mystery stories all in one place, so we created Mysteries at Midnight where you can listen to all new tales every week. Search for Mysteries at Midnight on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or your favourite podcast app, and follow and subscribe so you don't miss out on new episodes. So why don't you pick a story now? And can you guess the twist? And back again. So at a certain point, as the Capones were rising in Chicago, they began to actively look for their brother, yeah, their lost brother. Right, yeah, because uh, the the brother, uh, Salvatore, who went by Frank by the, that point, basically after Al moved to uh, Chicago, he started working for Johnny Torrio, and he, he took the whole family with him since he was sort of taking care of them. And it's interesting because a lot of them still lived in one house together. You'd think that, you know, you, you think of the Capones as being a super wealthy family, etc., but a lot of them actually lived in one house in, uh, in Chicago. And uh, he worked with Torrio and he had his two gangster brothers, uh, Salvatore and 
uh, Raphael work with them. And I say gangster brothers because they actually had other brothers who just did other things. But yeah, so they uh, they were working for him there, and they kind of worked up the uh, the ranks, and ended up becoming kind of like Torio's main you know main guys. Uh, and then while they were kind of taking over Cicero, which is like a community in Chicago, Salvatore ended up getting shot by police, and it was it was like ironic. It was a very ironic thing because the tar- the police weren't even targeting him. He was just kind of crossing the street at one point. A police car almost hit him. And a police officer got out of the car, you know, to check on him. And Salvatore thought that the guy had tried to, that the police officer had tried to run him over and was getting out to kill him. So he pulled out a gun. There was like a whole line of police. He didn't see that it was just the front of like a whole line of police cars. And all these police got out of their cars and shot him dead. And so after that, Al was kind of like, I, I want to know what happened to my other brother. Did he die? Is he still around? And about this time is when Al started actually taking over. Uh, Johnny Turio went back home to Italy after an assassination attempt on him and Al took over. And so he put, he sent out an open letter in the newspapers saying, if you're my brother, I'm looking for you, you know, uh, Vincenzo Capone, come back home, let me know what, what happened to you, etc." And Vincenzo apparently saw that, but didn't go back. But there were uh, a lot of people in Chicago decided they wanted to claim, you know, to be the Capone brother. So there were like literally lines of people claiming to be him. And uh, Al had a single question to ask to, to, to find out if this was the real person. And it was, what did you drink when you were younger? And everybody thinking, oh, this is the, you know, the beer baron is some form of alcohol or whatever. Nobody could guess it. And at that same time, Richard Hart is becoming famous, you know, this famous lawman in Nebraska, or, or specifically prohibition officer, uh, keeping alcohol from traveling through his territory. And Al's territory wasn't just Chicago. It grew from there. It was a real empire across a lot of states. And he had operations in Sioux City and in Kansas City. And if you look at the fastest route between those two towns, it goes literally right through Homer, which is just 14 miles south of uh, of, of Sioux City. And so Al is kind of like, we get, I mean, everywhere else he could buy people off. He could just pay them off and, and go through the territory. But he heard that, that this guy, Richard Hart could not be bought off. And so he's like, we're going to have to deal with this guy. And there's again, no official record that he said, we are going to wipe this guy out or we're going to kill him or whatever. That's just not how these gangs worked. But you get the idea. He was going to get rid of Richard Hart one way or the other. While at the same time sending out these open letters saying, I'm looking for my brother, where are you? And not knowing they're one and the same. Uh, so finally, Ri- uh, Richard maybe even detecting that, hey, he's going to come after my persona of Richard Hart, just goes to Chicago, goes right in there and tells him, you know, I'm your brother and answers the, the question, which was goat's milk, because he had had an illness when he was a kid. And so Al welcomed them home. There was even a reporter who saw them together. And, you know, talked about it years later. Well, in fact, this reporter was somebody that, that Al knew and liked. Uh, we all know this, this reporter's work because his photographs, actually, if you've ever seen pictures of the St. Valentine's Day Massacre, those are his. Or just about every picture of Al Capone are, are from this guy, uh, Berardi was his name. And so Al sees Berardi and, like, calls him in and says, hey, come sit down. I want to introduce you to my brother and introduce him to Vincenzo. This is all 1924, by the way. And uh, the reporter asks him, why don't you arrest Al? Richard says, I certainly will if he ever steps foot in Nebraska. And so the two made a deal. Al and Richard made a deal. Richard would stay out of Chicago. Al would stay out of Nebraska. Uh, so whatever they did in, in um, Kansas City had to go down through Iowa and Missouri first. But yeah, and so they, the two separated from each other, you know, stayed, but apparently they visited one another 
be, uh, because there are numerous people, numerous Winnebago people and Omaha's who talk about seeing Al on their reservation. Just like all of a sudden, this the most famous gangster in the world <laughs> gets out of the car and goes up and talks to their BIA agent. <laughs> yeah, that, that's crazy. <laughs> so can you talk about this famous Nebraska bank robbery and how both the Capones and Two Gun Heart got involved? Yeah, so this wound up being such a big story that I ended up... I mean, there's a chapter of it in the in Two Gun Heart, but I ended up finding that it was so complex, I had to write a whole separate book about it called uh, The Great Heist. But the uh, basically what happened in 1930, uh, September of 1930, there's a bunch of gangsters got out of car in this, you know, Lincoln, Nebraska at that time was tiny. Now it's about 250,000 people. At the time, it was this teeny tiny little town. A uh, bunch of gangsters jump out, run in with Tommy guns and, you know, going or run into the bank just as open. They say, uh, give us all your money, you know, open the vault, etc." And everybody in the bank paused for a moment. And then they started laughing because they thought it was a practical joke. Who would be robbing a bank in Lincoln, Nebraska? Uh, and then they shot into the air or, you know, actually, no, what they did, they didn't shoot in the air they, because they didn't want to attract the attention of people around them. But they beat one of the people up, you know, and then uh, they had everything set up and they were getting pulling some of the money. And then the bank manager happened to come in and saw what was going on. He goes, it was his birthday. So he thought it was a practical joke for him. So they had to beat him up to prove again that, no, this is a practical joke. Anyway, the one who was the lookout outside was a guy named Fred, quote unquote, Killer Burke. Killer was his, his uh, nickname. And he did get recognized during the bank robbery. And basically what happened was once these guys got into the vault, they pulled the money out, they you know, took it into the car. It ended up being a total of $2.7 million, which in today's money is around $32 million. It's the largest bank robbery in history, in, in the whole world, uh, in world history, the largest bank robbery uh, ever committed at least during peacetime, you know, the, the only exception to that is banks that got robbed during, you know, a war. So like, I think the biggest one is goes to Saddam Hussein who went and robbed his own banks when the war was going on. But aside from, you know, the, your own leaders robbing your own banks during wartime, this is the largest bank robbery in history. Um, they got away with it. And this is like right at the beginning of the Great Depression. There is no FDIC. It's going to ruin everybody. I mean, it basically is ruining everybody already across the state. It's just a, a horrible situation for everybody. But nobody could quite tell who this, you know, who, who it was. And they were looking around trying to find out who maybe had done it and stuff. Finally got traced back to this one guy, Fred Killer Burke, who had been the lookout. So yeah, he got arrested for something else and the uh, county attorney went there trying to be like, okay, we need to bring him back here because he wanted to uh, set a deal with him. It's like, look, you'll get less jail time if you give the money back. But Burke was wanted for so many other crimes elsewhere uh, that they could not, um, basically they could not bring him to Nebraska. They, they, you know, the other people had, you know, had dips on, on him first. So the county attorney realized I'm never going to be able to get these guys because they're all going to be wanted for other things. So he kind of started trying to grab other gangsters who he knew didn't commit the, the crime, but who had friends and basically going, I'm going to frame you for this crime unless you tell me who it was. And one of those people wound up being someone that Al was wanting to kind of uh, replace him, a, a guy by the name of Gus Winkler. He was possibly going to be Al's replacement because Al was wanting to retire and he had a short list of people that he kind of wanted to take over for him. And whether he wound up going away for tax evasion, which was those charges were beginning at that point, or whether he retires to Florida or whatever, he was going to sort of give it to these guys. So when the when this county attorney managed to nab 
um, Gus Winkler, he basically tried to blackmail Al Capone, basically tried to started saying, hey, I've got your guy and I'm going to send him away to prison for 20 years unless you get me my money back because I know it was Fred, cause Fred Burke also worked for Al Capone and Al was just like, nah, you know, or actually he did think about doing that at first. He was actually going to be helping Gus Winkler at first, but then he found that he kind of needed the money himself because of the charges against him and stuff. But then Richard went to him and said, Hey, we agreed to stay out of each other's territory. And this was right when that uh, one superintendent of his, the corrupt superintendent was, trying to fire him and looking into his past and stuff like that. All this was going on at that same time. And when, when I say, said earlier about Richard took a vacation because that superintendent was looking into his past, this was where he took that vacation. He went back to Homer, found out what was going on in Lincoln. So he went up to Chicago and said to Al, Hey, we agreed to stay out of each other's territory. And you have these guys robbing a bank in, in Nebraska. And Al had not sent them to rob the bank. But this was some of the same people who had committed the St. Valentine's Day massacre. And what had happened is they hadn't gotten paid. Al's paymaster had gambled the money away and hadn't paid the, these assassins. And so these assassins, instead of, and they couldn't go kill the paymaster because he was basically hiding out with Al. So they decided, well, we'll make this bank pay us. So they went, you know, and that's why they had committed the bank robbery. And Richard's just like, this is your mess. You keep your people out of my territory. And Al said, you're right. And so the very last thing Al Capone did before going to prison was he leaned on these guys and said, you have to give this money back to this bank. And, and so they did. And that basically saved the Nebraska economy. Wow, wild. <laughs> <laughs> Isn't it? It's, one of those things. it's like, how how is this like not known? <laughs> you know? Right. <laughs> So eventually, Al Capone goes to jail. It, it was a few years ago that I had Deirdre Capone on the show to talk about her granduncle. Oh. We did chat about his time in prison and how syphilis began affecting him, his behavior. Yeah. But it was during this time, or after his release anyway, that they all began getting closer again, right? The Capones and Richard Hart. Right. Well, yeah. In fact, actually, he still had not gone back to the uh, to the family. Still had not reunited with them and all that. But uh, after Al went to prison, well, first of all, actually, as the uh, what do you call it? after Richard got fired and was living back at home during the Great Depression, he tried just still living on his own. Uh, tried getting other jobs, couldn't. Uh, he was subsisting on fish that he caught in the in the river uh, and feeding his family with it. But then the Nebraska winter was coming in, and anybody who knows that is, you know, the Nebraska winters are really, really bad. So he finally turned back to the family and asked for help. And uh, all of them, except for the youngest, the youngest sibling, who was the, the only girl in the family, they all welcomed him back. And they were all just very much of like, hey, welcome, we're, we're glad to have you. Uh, Mafalda, who's the only one who was, who was not happy with him. But uh, Raphael, who basically had taken over, just started giving him money to survive and you know help his family and all that. And to, be, to him, it was just your family, so we'll uh, help you subsist. Uh, Richard still took a while before he went back and saw his mother. And yeah, I'm sure, uh, I'm sure Deirdre told you about where she was there, uh, when Richard just walked in and his mother fainted because she was, you know, he had not seen her in so long. And that's, that's another one of those mysteries. We just don't know why Richard didn't go back. You know, I mean, if, even if it was a problem with his father, 
why and that's sort of one of the reasons i don't believe it was fully about his father because then why didn't he go back after the father died you know why didn't he see his mother for so long there was something deep-seated there that we've never been able to figure out uh but he finally just went back and the family just again open uh welcomed back with open arms they would go up and visit each other in these cabins in um oh my goodness wisconsin uh and they would just visit they would have like these big family reunions there and uh yeah and just, oh and then so that was initially just the just went back and they would just kind of give him some money then they would uh give him some little odd jobs here and there and he just kind of you know would work for them little bits and pieces and it was never in nebraska he always had to go up to where they were and they'd come back with these wads of cash and it's funny because some people say oh no he didn't reunite the family until later until at least the 40s and it's like how do you explain those wads of cash he came back home with <laughs> and the person who would say that would just always kind of shrug like yeah, i guess i don't can't answer that um but yeah so he you know he would kind of go and work for them for a bit and and eventually, finally, he went back to his own family and gave him the big news that said, you know, you're actually my this is what my real name is. And I I've basically been lying to you all these times about who, about who I am. And you're part of this family, too, the most famous gangsters uh, in history. And I couldn't believe it when I asked Harry this, because Harry was the son of, of Richard Hart. I expected him to have, you know, to tell me some big reaction. But I, I was like, so what was your reaction when he said that? He just went. Didn't mean diddly squat to me. And I couldn't believe, but for some reason, according to him and uh, who else was it? His brother was still alive. Sherm just was like, they just kind of, they were teenagers. So they just didn't, didn't mean much to them at the time. They never explained how their mother reacted to it, but they all just kind of, you know, went on and Harry went to visit the family a few times. He was actually there when Al got out of prison. And then they all had this big, he had this big meeting with all of these, uh, the other heads of the houses or heads of the gangs of Chicago all got together around this big lazy Susan and they're all having dinner together and he was sitting amongst them and he was told by Ralph, okay, go and play pool in the other room. And he went to play pool while they in the next room were, were basically passing out all of the Capone interests. Essentially the Capones were getting out of the, out of the rackets and and we're dividing up their empire among all the others, all the other families. So he became a, a bit of a blowhard yeah. later on in life, right? Yeah. A big talking kind of curmudgeonly character flashing wads of money and, and yeah. being generally just obnoxious. Yeah, unfortunately, the story, uh, you know, a lot of times in history stories, you kind of want them to end at the at a certain point before their, their life ends, because it's like, that's where they were at their glory. And now they really kind of ruined their reputation. Because yeah, later in life, unfortunately, he, he started bra- being a braggart. He started, yeah, like you say, flashing his money around, just really like destroying a lot of his reputation. Yeah, I mean, he became so obnoxious one time at a bar. These guys just beat him up and he lost sight in one of his eyes. But yeah, it, it just sort of stayed like that. He still didn't, you know, he bragged about the money and everything, but he didn't really uh, come out still as a Capone until a bit later. I think it was after he got beaten up, he kind of calmed down a bit. But yeah, once he once it actually got revealed and the way it became revealed that he was a Capone was that uh, Ralph needed those cabins I was talking about. He was getting charged with tax evasion and the cabins were being used as evidence. And so they needed 
to be able to hide who actually owned the uh, the cabins. So they went to Richard and said, you, we need you to pretend that you actually own those cabins. And so Richard went uh, along with it and he actually lied in court and said, yeah, they were his. But when he did that, it came out and was revealed everywhere that he was a Capone. Uh, so we went back to Homer and it became all these whispers of he's really a Capone. He's really, a Capone, you know, and they like, it became so much of a scandal. And at that point he didn't really brag anymore. He kind of, you know, he kind of pulled back a bit. And I think it was because as long as he could keep his secret and just be like, look at all the money I have, it was fun for him. And I, I think it was also just partly, it was a life of just always being, doing the right thing. And then it's just like, screw it. What did that get me? I'm going to just go out and brag about, you know, making money now and just get it from illicit areas and, you know, et cetera, et cetera. So, yeah. So there was a time when he just really went out there and started being a braggart, but then, once it came out that he was actually Capone, he kind of pulled back a little. That was part of the, the Kefauver hearings, right? Yes. Yeah. I, uh, I forget in some of the details there, but essentially it really came down to, uh, as far as his part in it, protecting his brother was, his, uh, was him essentially saying, yeah, I own, these, uh, I own these cabins. I mean, the ideal story would have been for Hart to change the Capone's into a, a law-abiding family. But almost the opposite happened. Hart perjured himself to protect them. In addition to lying, he, he took ill-gotten Capone money, probably made from the illegal sale of liquor, which he fought a lot of his career to prevent from happening. It really is. It's, yeah, uh, although it's it's an understandable uh, tra- tragedy because of the fact that it's like he perjured himself but his reason for doing it was, you know, when I was down and out, he had two families. He had the family of, uh, well, three families, really, his own like family of his wife and children. But, uh, you know, he had the, the law family and he had the Capone family. And when he was down and out, that law family turned their backs on him and they allowed him. And he even said in some of his letters, look, we are living in a shack down by the river, which we, today we say that like, you know, we, it was an old Saturday Night Live skit that, that did sort of that sort of thing. But this was literally true. He, he and his family were subsisting off of fish that he was himself was catching uh, and they didn't care. But the Capone family was there for him. And it's like, I think anybody would do the same thing. As much as it's like, we can judge him and go, oh, he perjured himself. At the same time, if group A stood by you in your time of need and group B did not, I think 99% of the people out there would go with group A. Um, That's a good point. Yeah. And, you know, when it comes right down to it, they both, both sides kind of came closer together because the Capones did actually get out of, uh, of the business at that point. I mean, there's all of this uh, that people have, have made a thing of since then, like, what was it? Uh, Geraldo Rivera tried to do the whole, I'm going to go into Capone's vault because there's going to be tons of money in there. And, you know, you had the Capone reality show and, you know, all, all these things that were people really believe the Capone stayed in the business and were, you know, continued to, to uh, have sway. And they, they really, they didn't stay in the business. They, Ralph continued to have sway the rest of his life just because people respected him. In fact, actually his uh, nephew went, uh, was visiting him during, like when he got married or something like that. And he went to a bar. His name happened to be Jeff as well. It It was Richard's grandson. Uh, so I guess that makes his grand uncle. Anyway, uh, so Jeff went to this bar with Ralph and 
at one point, Ralph is like sitting there kind of looking. He sees behind the bar that there's a certain type of uh, drink that's back there or there's certain type of uh, cans that are back there. And he says to the bartender, where'd you get those? And the bartender says, oh, we got it from so-and-so. And Ralph just went, you're not getting it from him anymore. And the, the bartender immediately went, okay, Ralph, just like did no questions, straightened up, you know, tense, you know, like, okay. So even though they were out of the business, they still had sway, but they were no longer controlling anything. After, uh, after Al went to prison, Ralph kind of took it over a bit, but then Al got out of prison and they just completely went, here you go. I will sell this to all these different people. They made a bunch of money off of that, but then that was it. Uh, and that money got spent basically by that generation. They bought some things. And so the next generation had a little bit, and then that was it. The, the Capones have stayed out of crime ever since then, even though they've been treated very much like that. Um, Deirdre's father tried, he wanted to become a, uh, I believe it was a district attorney or something like that. He, he was wanting to try to get into law himself and he couldn't. They wouldn't let him in because his name was Capone and until he eventually killed himself. Uh, and frankly, that's what I wish he had written about because to me, that's a really important story. I think her father is somebody who's a, an important person, someone who really tried to bring a positive name to the, to the name Capone, but the world just wouldn't let him. And I think people need to know about people like that, that I actually have a lot of respect for the guy for trying to trying to do that. And I think more people should recognize that and, and look at that. And that's one of the reasons I so badly wanted to write a book about this member of the Capone family, not just because it's like to show, hey, there's a different part of the Capone family, but rather also to say, hey, uh, you know, they, we get in, stuck in our heads certain names and go, that's all this name can ever mean. That's all this this idea can ever be not recognizing there's it's a whole family there's other people and to to stereotype everybody with that name in that one regard is wrong so um anyway so yeah they, they, to go back to your point i i think it was you, you, it is interesting how richard went from being sort of the pure straight and narrow kind of guy to perjuring himself but the the family also went from being the most famous crime family in the world to being you know more or less law-abiding with a little bit of influence, but that basically is it. So tell us about your website uh, and how people can find out more about you. Uh, so Bandwagon Online, I'm oh, sorry, I should say it more clearly. Bandwagononline.com is the website. Uh, and that's where I just have all of my books. It's my publishing wing. Uh, so far, I've independently published all of my own work. Uh I've actually gone to regular publishers to get published, uh, you know, before in this, this book in particular, I found out why it had never gotten published before, why there had never been any other books. It was literally because when I went to regular publishers, I was told, uh, well, this is an Italian American who's not a gangster. Come back to us with, you know, a book about Al, another book about Al or about some other Italian American who's a gangster, then we'll publish it. But we won't have anything to do with this as long as it's a member of, you know, as long as it's an Italian American who's a lawman. And I went, now there is A, why we have never seen, heard anything about uh, Richard Hart and B, why these stereotypes have continued. And it's really disappointing to know the publishing industry is more concerned with just reliving, you know, the, the famous stories and and perpetuating stereotypes rather than telling something new. So anyway, so that's why I have uh, published all my own. And that's why, yeah, if you, if you just go to bandwagon, uh, bandwagononline.com. Uh, all my books are there, including Two Gun Heart. 
Well, your book scratches two itches for me. I love gangster stories and I love Old West stories. Yeah. And this is a combination of both. Yeah. Yeah, it really is. You know, I mean, Al's story is fascinating as well. I mean, it's been told a million times, but the comparison of these two, because even though they went with two totally separate, you know, I mean, one side of law and the other, they were very much alike because they were both just very passionate about what they did. Exactly. Well, thanks again for your time. Oh, thank you. Thank you for having me. This has been fantastic. Again, I have been speaking to Jeff MacArthur. He is the author of Two Gun Heart, Lawman, Cowboy, and Long Lost Brother of Al Capone. This has been another episode of the Most Notorious Podcast, broadcasting to every dark and cobwebbed corner of the world. I'm Eric Rivenis, and have a safe tomorrow. Have you ever wondered how inbred the Habsburgs really were? What women in the past used for birth control? Or what Queen Victoria's nine children got up to? On the History Tea Time podcast, I profile remarkable queens and LGBTQ royals, explore royal family trees, and delve into women's medical history and other fascinating topics. Join me every Tuesday for History Tea Time, wherever fine podcasts are enjoyed.